Well, hello there. Good to be with you again. Glad to have this time with you in your mini churches. Uh, this is the second sequel episode that we're filming, having filmed the first sequel episode to answer the question, is there a difference between entering the kingdom and inheriting the kingdom? We want to move on to a couple of other questions that have come back to me from the mini churches that are on people's minds. And so the first question I want to seek to try to answer with you in this episode is the question, are there really degrees of punishment in hell? Well, I believe the scriptures do teach that there are degrees of punishment in hell, and I want to take us to several passages that teach that. And so the first passage I want to take us to is Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. This is the passage in the New Testament that describes that very sobering and somber judgment of Jesus Christ of all of the ages unbelieving dead, and they all are sentenced to the lake of fire or conscious torment in hell forever and ever and ever. One of the most serious passages of all the Bible. And as I take us there, let me just read Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15, the great white throne judgment. And I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so when we consider are there degrees of punishment in hell, I want to begin by asking this question. If hell is one punishment fits all, if hell is one punishment fits all, then why are individuals individually sentenced in, in Revelation 20, verse 13? And I saw the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Second question. If hell is in fact one punishment fits all, then why are the books necessary for each person? At the second part of verse 13. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. If hell is in fact a one punishment fits all situation, then why are there books brought into play at the great white throne judgment? Why are those books of their deeds necessary? Another passage that I believe teaches that there are degrees of punishment in hell is found in Matthew, Matthew chapter 11, verses 21 through 24. Jesus speaking, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would, not, would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, 
will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You shall descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. And so I ask the question, if hell is one punishment fits all, in what sense will it be better for Tyre and Sidon and better for Sodom in hell than it will be for Chorazin and Bethsaida and for Capernaum in hell? Clearly, there are degrees of punishment in hell. A third passage I want to take us to that teaches there are degrees of punishment in hell is also in the Gospel of Matthew, found in chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. And again, it's our Lord Jesus' own words. And whoever does not receive you or heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake off the dust of your feet. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Cities that wouldn't receive Christ's apostles will incur worse judgment in hell than Sodom and Gomorrah will incur. That's degrees of punishment in hell. A fourth passage teaching that there are degrees of punishment in hell is in the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verses 38 to 40. And in his teaching, he, Jesus, was saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and the chief priests in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses and for appearance's sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Jesus said there's a worse punishment in hell for these hypocritical, exploitive religious leaders than for other people. There are degrees of punishment in hell. Another passage to take us to is Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, verses 47 to 48. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will shall receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. And from everyone who has been given much shall much be required. And to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. So again, Jesus is saying that there will be many stripes of chastening or punishment in hell for those who knew and willingly disobeyed God. And there will be fewer stripes of chastening and pain in hell for those who disobeyed God but did so in ignorance. Degrees of punishment in hell. Let's go over to Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, verse 29. These are not the words of our Lord and Savior directly, but this is scriptural truth. Hebrews 10, verse 29. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve 
who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace? Friends, persons who reject Christ with utter contempt will have greater punishment in hell than those who have rejected Christ without willful scorn. There are degrees of punishment in hell. I want to take you to one more passage. It's in Luke chapter 19, 16 to 19, and then that same chapter, verses 24 to 26. Again, uh, making the point that there are degrees of punishment in hell. And jumping in at Luke chapter 19 and verse 16, the words of Jesus Christ, and the first appeared saying, Master, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing, be in authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, your mina master has made five minas. And he said to him also, and you are to be over five cities. And then skipping down to verse 24 through 26. And he said to the bystanders, take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Master, he has the ten minas already. I tell you that to everyone who has shall more be given, but from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. And so my question is, if there are degrees of reward, which these verses teach, if there are degrees of reward in the millennium, would it not be consistent that there also would be degrees of punishment in hell? I think it's clear that there are degrees of punishment in hell. Hell will be misery, ongoing torment for everyone who is there, but there will be degrees of that torment meted out, given out, sentenced out by the Lord Jesus Christ at the great white throne judgment, Revelation 20, 11 through 15, based upon the Christ rejecters' individual deeds done during their life. Another question I'd like to seek to try to answer with Scripture is the question, what about the general tendency, it would seem, among Bahamians that there's a real fear or superstition of death. I'm sure that any fear or superstition of death is not limited by any means to the Bahamians. I'm sure people all over the world have fear about death. But to answer the question, um, I think I want to break it into two headings. The first heading I'd like to consider with you is the fear of being around the dead. Uh, the fear of being in close proximity to a dead body. And to consider this with you, I'd like to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, some verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is a wonderful chapter that assures us of certain details about uh, our resurrection bodies, what they will be like that is similar to our pre-resurrection bodies and how they'll be different than our pre-resurrection bodies. And I want to focus in first on verse 42, which reads, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It the perishable body, the it is sown a perishable body, it is raised an imperishable body. What we're seeing here is that the bodies we live in now that are prone to physically die, God calls them perishable. Uh, that means that as we age, as we die, 
there are unpleasant sights associated with our perishable bodies. We, we age, as I say, or if we're killed in a car wreck, uh, our bodies can become very unsightly. Um, if you leave a body in the heat, unembalmed or even embalmed for a period of time, the bad smells can come. Remember, Jesus referring to Lazarus's uh, body in the tomb for four days. He was told there would be a stench. Uh, that's this perishable body quality that we're facing up to at this time in our answer. Often is why we don't do an open casket. We choose to do instead a closed casket. Originally, that's why we had flowers around caskets in times of death, because the, the aroma, the, the scent of the beautiful flowers covered the smell of death. And so it's understandable how we would be in some way feel awkward or even fearful around a body that can die. Sights and smells are uh, not pleasant. And that's because we have perishable bodies. But there's more. Verse 43, it is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. Uh, the body that we have presently, each of our bodies presently uh, that are prone to die, capable of physically dying, are they have a dishonor to them when they die. That's why the funeral director puts a sheet over the stretcher to take the body from wherever the body has died to the funeral home. Uh, that's why the uh, persons on the scene of a murder cover the murdered body with some sheet for discretion because that body that has died or that has been killed has a certain amount of dishonor to it simply because it's a dead body. That's why some families elect to close the casket of their loved one for all of the time while at the church. Uh, there's a sense in which the bodies that we have that are capable of physically dying have a, a dishonor to them. Hence, we can feel awkward around them. We can be fearful about them. Still in verse 43, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. God says the body that we have that is prone to physical death is a body of weakness and how clear that becomes when we consider the ravages of so many illnesses that afflict us in our weakness bodies. These bodies that are prone to be sick, these bodies that are prone to physically die, they have a weakness to them. And that weakness is often seen in the frailty of these bodies that we have in an accident. We fall from a height, we're in an automobile accident, we're in a fire, or we're assaulted. We are uh, violently killed. These bodies that we have um, in this life, as great as they are, they have a certain weakness to them. And because they do, often when we face the weakness of a body of a loved one who has died, it makes us feel fearful about the weakness of our own bodies that are prone to death as well. But there's more. Verse 44. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. The body that you and I have that's prone to sickness and to physical death um, is a natural body. Oftentimes we see a body in a casket with the casket open and not knowing exactly what to say and wanting to say something nice because of our nervousness and our awkwardness, sometimes we'll say something like, it looks like he's sleeping. Or we'll say, she looks good. These are statements that really are rooted in the fact that it's awkward to be around a dead body. And I don't know 
that that's a sin at all. It's just a reality of what death is like and what bodies that are prone to death are like. So that's addressing Bahamian fear of being around a body. And again, it's not just a Bahamian fear of being around a body. People all over the world are fearful of being around a body. Let's go to the second kind of heading, which is not a fear of being around a dead person, but the fear of actually dying. Uh, many people in the Bahamas and around the world are just plain afraid to die. This is a fear of how am I going to die? Am I going to die a violent death? Am I going to die a death due to a prolonged and painful sickness like cancer? Or how am I going to die? It gives me fear. Am I going to die in public? Is it going to be embarrassing? Am I going to die in a less than a desirable hospital? Am I going to die forgotten by people? Forgotten by my family? Forgotten by my friends? That's a fear. Am I going to die alone? Or will someone be with me who loves me and cares for me? Will I die with the shame of unsolved family frictions? No one wants to die that way. That can be a fearful thought. Or the fear of, will I die with financial woes and leave those financial woes back to my loved ones who survive me? There is a fear of the how one will die. Other undesirable circumstances that I haven't named. Many of us are fearful about the circumstances that will surround our physical deaths. That's the, the fear of the how. There's also, I think if we're honest, a fear of the what. None of us have ever died before. We've only known earth. None of us have ever been to heaven. But all of us, unless the rapture takes us home before our physical deaths, all of us are going to physically die. Reminds me of the true story, I think I've told it before, but I love to repeat it, of a, a terminally ill patient who knew he was dying and had a born-again doctor who often did checkups on the man to see how things were going. And in this one particular examination, in the doctor's examination room, the dying man said to his Christian doctor, what's heaven like? And the doctor started to cite some of the details of heaven that are found in God's word, the Bible. And the man said, yes, I know, I've read that, I know that, that's great, I know that, but I'd like to know more. What is heaven like, doctor? I'd like to know more. And the doctor said, just wait a minute. The doctor left the examination room, closed the door, and went and got his Labrador Retriever dog. He brought his Labrador Retriever dog to the outside of the closed examination door, left the dog there. The doctor entered the examination room, closed the door, and just waited. And in no time at all, both men inside the closed door of the examination room heard the doctor's Labrador Retriever whimpering. <coughs> and then scratching on the closed door. And the doctor said to the patient, that's my dog. He has never been in this examination room because it's sterile and I want to keep it clean. He's never been in this room. He doesn't know anything about this room. But he's so eager to get into this room simply because I'm in the room and he knows it. I'm his master and the dog knows that he'll be happy in this room as long as I'm in the room. And so it is with heaven. None of us have ever been there yet. 
We know what the Bible says about heaven. We probably wish we knew more about the splendors of heaven than the Bible reveals, but we should take it by faith that if Jesus, our Lord and Savior and Master, is in heaven, and in fact at the very center of heaven, that it will be fantastic. It's hard to understand eternity. And so sometimes we fear about it. Sometimes I've heard people ask me, will I be bored? Will I be unoccupied in heaven? Will I be floating around on some cloud playing a harp in a never-ending worship service? No, Scripture doesn't spell out everything we'll be doing in heaven, but we, there'll be work in heaven. There was work for Adam and Eve before they fell into sin in the garden. And when you consider the new heaven and the new earth that Revelation 21 and 22 uh, tell us of, there will be work for us to do to occupy all of eternity. The difference is we won't get tired. We won't get hurt. <laughs> we won't need to eat, but we'll get to eat. We'll get, be about the business of Jesus Christ in heaven's splendors and perfections. We won't be bored. We won't be unoccupied. It will be total fulfillment in every way, shape, and form. I want to read some verses uh, to close this episode in answering of the question, uh, what about fearing being around death? What about fearing actually dying? I want to take us to first Revelation chapter 21, verse 3. This is looking ahead to the new heaven and the new earth because the old um, earth will be incinerated by fire and a new earth will be created and a new heaven will be created. And in Revelation chapter 21, verse 3, it says, John says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. That's heaven, God being among us. Verse 22 of Revelation chapter 21. And I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. Verse 23, and the city has no need of sun or of the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb, L-A-M-B, Jesus. Heaven is going to be magnificent. No need of a temple, God is a temple. No need of a lamp, Jesus is the light of heaven. Going on, Revelation 22, verses 3 and 4. And there shall no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his bondservants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be upon their foreheads. No curse in the eternal state of heaven. The throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in the new heaven and the new earth, and his bondservants, all the redeemed of all the ages, shall serve him in practical, literal ways forever and ever and happily forever. Still, with this eternal state, this depiction and description of heaven, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But just as it is written... Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. That's a capital S, Spirit, Holy Spirit. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. 
For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. Frankly, our eye can't imagine what we're going to see in heaven. Our ear can't hear what we will hear in heaven. Our heart can't even imagine the greatness and the goodness and the perfections of heaven that will be ours to enjoy. God has revealed these things to us in part in Scripture, but one day when we are there, because of Jesus Christ, we will experience all these perfections forever. Then, John 14. Jesus' famous and precious words to his disciples in the upper room at the time of the Last Supper, just prior to his betrayal and his crucifixion. In John 14, his men were just starting to understand the magnitude, the weight of the reality that he was going to leave them. He was going to die, be killed. They'd be alone. They were scared. They were probably angry. They were in denial. They were troubled. And he said to them, then what he still says to you and me today. Jesus said to them, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. What precious verses from our Savior's mouth to our ears. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Heaven's a real place. It's a prepared place, prepared for prepared people. Persons are prepared to go to heaven by trusting Jesus Christ alone for salvation from sin on earth during their lifetimes. I trust that's all of us watching this DVD today. The last verse I'd like to share by way of encouragement as it pertains to no need to fear heaven and what it might entail is 2 Timothy 1 and verse 12. 2 Timothy 1, verse 12. This is the last letter that Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit before he was beheaded. He knew his execution was at hand. He wasn't afraid. He said elsewhere in this letter that he had run the race set before him. He had finished the course. And here in 2 Timothy Chapter 1, verse 12, written approximately two weeks before he was executed, he said this under inspiration. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. What a wonderful assurance the Apostle Paul had staring a violent death down in the eyes. It's the same hope you can have. It's the same assurance that you can have as a believer in Jesus Christ. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, 
for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Praise the Lord for so great a salvation. Praise the Lord that he is such a marvelous Savior.